Consumption, How and Why We Buy. Episode number two, published on Monday, December 17th, 2012. From Toronto, New York, and the internet, this is Consumption, the podcast that explores the changing face of consumerism. Welcome to Consumption, How and Why We Buy. I'm Graham Spicer. In this episode, we're first exploring the role that Coca-Cola has played in forming our current understanding of Christmas through two Christmas icons, the television show A Charlie Brown Christmas and Santa himself. Then, we ask two experts about the pop culture high point for 2012, South Korea's favorite export, Psy, and all of the assorted craziness that has come along with his song, Gangnam Style. So let's go. Coca-Cola has played a larger part than we suspect in how we all think about Christmas. We know that the purveyor of sugary water is one of the world's most savvy marketers. But did you know that Coke created Santa Claus? Well, not really, but their influence on how we view the jolly old elf has been considerable. We asked Ted Ryan, the head archivist for the Coca-Cola Company, to explain. Ted, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So the history of Santa Claus, as we know him here in North America, has been well documented. He's this mashup of the Dutch character Sinterklaas and England's Father Christmas. And, and then he was well described in Clement Clark Moore's poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas, which we probably all better know as The Night Before Christmas. And that was all the way back in 1823. But I know that the Coca-Cola Company has also played an important part in how we all imagine Santa. Uh, one that probably a lot of us aren't aware of. Could you tell us a little bit about the role that Coca-Cola has played? Uh, well, the Coca-Cola Santa Claus is, is an icon known all around the world, but it didn't start off that way. Coke actually began advertising with Santa in the 20s, and it actually came out of an initiative from Canada. We were trying to make the drink a year-round drink, and we coined the slogan, Thirst Knows No Season, and that came from uh, the manager of the Canadian operations at the time, Eugene Kelly. And what better way to sell during Christmas than to associate, or sell during the winter than to associate, associate yourself with Christmas? Uh, and in doing so, Coke got a couple of different Santa Clauses. The first one was just ugly as all get out. He looked kind of mean. He looked kind of ferocious. He was a very intimidating figure. Uh, the second one wasn't much better. Uh, he had a fierce look about him. You, you didn't know hide or face. Or all that you saw were their face. Then in 1930, we hired Fred Meisen to paint what was obviously a department store Santa taking a break uh, while kids sat looking at him, taking, uh, you know, drinking his Coca-Cola during his break. But we knew that that wasn't it. If Coca-Cola was going to have a Santa Claus, it had to be the real Santa Claus. So we, working with our agency at the time, Darcy, commissioned Haddon Sumblum, a well-known illustrator at the time, to give his vision of Santa Claus. And Sumblum pulled on his Swedish heritage, and he painted the real Santa Claus. It couldn't be anything but him. He was uh, jolly. He was happy. He was decked out in red. 
he was grandfatherly uh, in later incarnations. He wasn't above sneaking in your fridge to take a bite of your turkey leg. It was Santa Claus. And that very first Santa by Sunbloom was uh, used in the 1931 ad. And then for the next 30 some odd years, Sunbloom painted the Coca-Cola Santa Claus every year until 1964. I understand that before Haddon Sumblum and Coca-Cola came up with the image of Santa Claus that, that you did, that Santa Claus was fre- frequently depicted in, in a green outfit rather than in a red one. Sometimes he, he wasn't the portly gentleman that we've come to, uh, to know and love, but he was really quite thin, almost elfish looking. So it, um, it's certainly interesting the way that Coca-Cola has, has formed this imagery for us in, in our heads. So aside from the poem by Clement Moore, uh, where did Sunblum's inspiration for his Santas come from? Was Santa modeled after some real person? The, the vision that, that Sunblum had, well, A, came from his, his Swedish heritage, but then B, the, the, the very first model was a friend of his, a salesman uh, named Lou Krennis, and he, he got uh, Lou to, to pose. In later years, Sunblum uh, used himself as the model. And you can always tell the Sunbloom ones because Santa's always kind of turned a little bit to the right as an artist would be if he was looking uh, in a mirror taking you know, as, he's, as he's capturing his images. Some of the other oddities with, with Sunbloom, and, and some of the stories are quite fascinating, the two little children that appeared, the boy and the girl, in later ads trying to sneak up and catch Santa were actually two little girls who were his next-door neighbors when he lived in Arizona. Uh, Sunbloom wanted a boy and a girl, so he turned one of them into a boy. And when asked about it later, he said, I turned him into a boy. I don't think he minded because uh, she never said anything about it. Uh, the dog was actually a poodle that lived next door as well that was a gray one. But every time it appeared in a Coca-Cola ad, it was black. The, fan, the, the, the consumers loved the Coca-Cola Santa Claus. And as you said earlier, there are many images of Santa Claus. Sometimes he was short. Sometimes he was tall. He was called an elf, right? Jolly elf. So that's a short. What Sunbloom did and what Coca-Cola did is we took this big, jolly, friendly, figure that would be welcomed in houses around the world and we put them on calendars we put them on ads print ads packages the very first one was used on the coke's new invention the six-pack uh which was invented in 1923 but was really hitting the market in the 30s and these forms of advertising went out to billions and billions and billions of people over the course of the 30 years i'm always asked did coca-cola invent santa claus no he was around long before then what Coca-Cola did is create this modern, friendly image of Santa Claus that everybody knows and loves today. Now, another important part of the Christmas tradition here in North America, at least it is for me, is the animated television special, A Charlie Brown Christmas. And Linus's monologue in the Christmas pageant is arguably the best-known contemporary telling of the Christmas story. Um, and this iconic TV show, as I understand it, almost didn't happen. Could you tell us how Coca-Cola was involved? The story of how Charlie Brown's Christmas made it to air is a fascinating one. Uh, Lee Mendelson and Charles Schultz had been pitching a Charlie Brown animated special, but they wanted to do a baseball one. They had done, uh, Mendelson had done a documentary on Willie Mays, and so after doing the best ball, baseball player in the world, he thought, let's do the worst baseball player in the world, Charlie Brown. Uh, and this animated special of Charlie Brown, Good Grief Charlie Brown is what it was called, he was going to be the world's, uh, world's worst baseball player. They shopped it around Hollywood, and they shopped it around New York, Madison Avenue, and nobody bought on it. Nobody wanted it. They were turned down everywhere they, could, they were going. 
as Lee Mendelson tells the story too, the bank notes were due, everything had been done on spec, and they still uh, they had no money to cover it. When the phone rang and McCann Erickson called Mendelson saying, we don't want that baseball one, but our client might want a Christmas one. So Mendelson and Schultz in a 30-minute phone conversation came up with the entire script of a Charlie Brown Christmas in about 30 minutes. It filled one single uh, sheet of paper, triple spaced, uh, and Schultz had a couple of demands. It had to be kids, not actors voicing the roles, and the passage from Luke had to be included at the end of the special. Uh, Coca-Cola agreed to those terms, and then they went frantically to work producing a Charlie Brown Christmas in three short months. Uh, it aired in December, and it was the most watched Christmas program, and not only that year, but many years to come. Coca-Cola and Schultz then formed a partnership, and we sponsored a half dozen, dozen different Charlie Brown episodes over the next uh, couple of years. Now, whether it's Sunbloom Santa or a Charlie Brown Christmas, Coca-Cola has certainly created some of the most important touch points in pop culture for the past 50 years. Um, the 1971 Hilltop TV commercial where we all learned the words to I'd like to teach the world to sing. Uh, the Mean Joe Green commercial from the late 70s. And even more recently, the Coca-Cola polar bears. Why is it you think that Coca-Cola seems to be able to continually create these important cultural icons? I think that the reason why Coca-Cola has been so successful in creating cultural icons, it's, it's a brand that is at a touch point that makes people happy. You know, our current slogan is open happiness, and, and that's, that's a great slogan. It's a long line of our slogans. But if you think about it, Coca-Cola is an enabler for happiness. When you gather with your family around the Christmas table, you know, Coke is a natural partner there. It belongs there. Uh, it belongs at the special occasions, the, the first dates, the going to the football game with your dad, going to a hockey match with your grandfather. It, it, it's a place, an enabler that, that crosses generations and it makes people happy. The famous I'd like to, to buy the world of Coke, do you know if you go to Latin America that that song is associated with Christmas? It was done as an ad in Brazil called Candles, and it showed a group of kids sitting on a hill forming the shape of a Christmas tree, all holding candles lit while, they, uh, while the song played over their, uh, uh, over their image. And that, that ad, even though it came out in 71, is still very associated, associated with Christmas in different pre, uh, places in the world. The Christmas caravan, if you go to England, the Christmas trucks are incredibly popular. People love them. They, they mark the Christmas season as beginning because the Christmas trucks are, are rolling down the streets. So these are, we the, have a, these, are the, these are the Coca-Cola delivery trucks, which you put special graphics on them for Christmas? Correct. In the U.S., we would, in Canada, they'd be called the Christmas caravan. But in the U.K., it's called, in Europe, uh, for Northern Europe, for that matter, uh, the Christmas trucks are coming. And I have this special ad that comes out every year. And people know it's just like our Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade in the U.S. You know it's Christmas because the Thanksgiving Day Parade is hit. They know it's Christmas because the Christmas trucks are there. Coke is one of the few brands in the world that could do it. I, I love the, the, my job. It's the best job in the world because I'm a, I'm a historian for a brand that is unlike any in the world. Uh, and it's just an amazing and we have an amazing ability to produce ads and and to touch the public where they you know where they remember it. Ted, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time today. Merry Christmas. Oh, thank you. Merry Christmas to you as well. That was Ted Ryan, Director of Communications, Coca-Cola Archives for the Coca-Cola Company. We reached him at his office in Atlanta. 
오빤 강남스타일 Earlier this month, a music video from an unlikely chubby white rapper from South Korea named Psy overtook Justin Bieber's Baby as the most watched video in history. By the time you listen to this podcast, there's a good chance that the video for Gangnam Style will have surpassed 1 billion views on YouTube. He's met the President of the United States and performed with Madonna. He taught Britney Spears how to do the Gangnam Style dance on an episode of the Ellen DeGeneres television show, which, by the way, has itself received 50 million YouTube views. So why has this particular song so captured the zeitgeist? We start our report with an interview with Wayne Arnold, CEO of global digital marketing agency Proferro, and the author of a recent article in Advertising Age titled Beyond Gangnam Style, Why Korea is a Pop Culture and Products Powerhouse. In your article published in Advertising Age a few weeks ago, you made the assertion that the ascent of Psy and the song Gangnam Style, this isn't an accident, but it was inevitable based on South Korea's increasing influence on pop culture here in North America. Could you explain that to us? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's an interesting, and, and since I've written that article, uh, there's been a lot of feedback on it because I think for a long, long time, um, if you, depending where you lived in the world, you're either very aware of the influence of South Korea on popular culture or you're completely oblivious to the fact. So if you sat in, for example, in something like at Singapore or Tokyo or Beijing or Shanghai, you know, it would have been one of the most obvious statements of the year. Whereas if you sat here, for example, where I do now in, in New York or where you are in Toronto or, or my friends in, in London, it kind of came as a massive shock that something this, this strange Korean guy doing a funny dance could be so, so popular. Um, because I, I personally believe that Korea is actually one of the full superpowers of the cultural world. Yeah, actually, um, but yeah, actually, if you, if you look at what's happening in, in the marketplace, most people in North America don't know that. So this Korean pop music and culture, or K-pop, as I've discovered it's been dubbed, it's a huge industry, especially when you consider the size of the Korean market. Can you give us an example of just how big K-pop has become? Well, so, yeah, so if you, the first thing you've got to look at is Korea as market is only 50 million people. So it's really, really small. Yeah, for example, I was in uh, Shanghai not that long ago and then in Tokyo, and there's one common theme. If you went to any shopping mall, you saw hundreds and hundreds of, in that case, Japanese girls, and in the other case, Shanghai girls, queuing up to see these pop acts. And you would have thought they were local talent, but actually what they were were Korean bands or K-pop bands that were touring the nation. So if you take the, the equivalent of the Billboard Top 10 for Japan or the Billboard Top 10 in China, you know, typically around about six or seven of those top bands are all come from Korea. And it's like, a, it's like a sort of pop factory out there right now. So fundamentally, you know, all the top music and the bands in the APAC region are being influenced by this thing called K-pop. And so what Korea has become is like the world's biggest exporter in Asia of basically popular music and, and, and popular culture. And that's kind of down to a number of sort of, sort of strange um, attributes, some of them purely by, by chance, some of them very scientific, um, and they kind of fall into three big groups. One is the geography, i.e. where Korea sits um, in the world. Two is basically the investment that the Korean government's put into it, realizing that Korea's future is really focused on, on basically exporting 
its products. And, and three is what I call the underdog. You know, they, they, whereas maybe, for example, if you sit in China, you wouldn't want to buy from Japan, or you sit in the US, you wouldn't want to buy uh, from, from China. Um, Korea has this kind of nice little friendly feel that actually it feels like it's something that basically what I call you can belong to because you know, there's nothing wrong with buying from Korea. So I'm not sure if you want me to expand into those areas, but I'm very happy to do so if, it, if that would make sense. Well, you actually raised something there that I find really interesting, and that's this idea of the Korean government recognizing how important culture is and that they have invested in the, the infrastructure and, and in the arts to allow for this to be more readily exportable. And, and that I find really interesting. Yes, so, so actually the Koreans have a word for it, which is called how you, which is known as the Korean wave. So, so what the Korean government did roughly around about sort of 15 years ago was create the Ministry for Culture, Sports and Tourism. And their annual budget, and you kind of compare this to the US, the annual budget is about $3.5 billion the Korean government spend in promoting its culture, sports and in effect the nation. Of that, they put a massive $146 million, this is in 2012, just purely in the arts. So purely in promoting Korean film, TV programs, and music goes into just funding these new acts and these new, new products. So hence my, sort of my hypothesis of, of the article was Gangnam Style is actually not a sort of one-off hit. It's actually around about a decade's worth of work of an industry that's been built up from very strong investment by the Korean government to promote itself. And part of that is because the government's realized that actually, if you've only got 50 million people in your population, 5-0, which is not a lot, then actually you want to become a bigger sort of cultural influence or economic influence on the world, you need to export. And so it really started with a program or, or a, um, a basically an episode which is called Winter um, Sonata, which, again, we probably haven't heard from here, sitting in North America, but it basically has become this complete sort of cultural phenomenon around Asia, and it's one of the most popular, um, I suppose if you like, it's kind of like the Lord of the Rings um, or the Harry Potter um, of Asia, and that was one a great example of the government investing in arts and culture to create great content. And I understand that the, if you were to compare the value, the, the market value, or the, the sales of something like Winter Sonata to Harry Potter, as an example, I seem to remember you made a reference to this in, in your article, it far outstrips Harry Potter in value. Yeah, so, so what you've created is like a whole industry around it. So, I mean, so Harry Potter is a franchise, it's like $15 billion. Um, it's always quite difficult to estimate this, but some initial estimates say that Winter Sonata was you know, about $27 billion. Um, so it's, it's huge when you kind of think about, you know, it's, it's a bit like, um, I guess, the Harry Potter meets Lord of the Rings, where it's not only just a TV franchise that's been huge, it's created a whole film industry. Um, and as you get a lot of uh, Japanese tourists traveling to Korea to actually visit the sites where certain sets were filmed and, and where certain characters had their first kiss and where certain characters had their first you know, sort of like fight together. So, it's, yeah, it's become a huge, huge element. But I think what's been interesting is that to date, a lot of this sort of cultural reference has been encapsulated and, and, and stayed within the, sort of the Asian regions. And really, sort of Gangnam Style was really the first one that really broke beyond the borders of Asia. So it became a true global phenomenon, not just only here in the U.S., um, but also in Europe as well. So, Mr. Arnold, I'm going to ask you a, a question that I've asked a couple of others as well. 
So have you yet mastered the cowboy dance that Size made famous? <laughs> the, uh, maybe it was a bit better than, uh, than the attempts you saw at Google. But um, our Christmas party, uh, which is only on Wednesday, um, there was an attempt, but yeah, not, not perfect. <laughs> I'm, 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 a, I'm a Britishman with two left feet, so no, no, nowhere near, nowhere near, I'm afraid. So why is it that some things go viral? Videos of singing cats or of novelty songs or certain advertising slogans. Yet other pieces of content that arguably are just as creative or catchy remain obscure. And more importantly, how can we get this podcast to go viral? We contacted Professor David Rowe from the Institute for Culture and Society at the University of Western Sydney in Sydney, Australia, and asked him. So, Professor Rowe, thank you very much for joining us. Great pleasure. So, North America, we've just become psy-obsessed over here. The song Gangnam Style is heard everywhere, and celebrities and sports stars are seen doing the, the cowboy dance that Psy does in the Gangnam Style video. And Psy, he's got to have been a guest on, on every talk show in America. He was also the most popular costume for kids to wear this year at Halloween. So I'm curious, is Psy and Gangnam Style huge hits in Australia as well? Yes, uh, he's been here, um, big hit here, so it's obviously a global phenomenon. I, I, uh, I came across a statistic that um, he has had in, in Australia more Google searches than the, than the Prime Minister. So he's, he's more, more popular than the Australian Prime Minister. <laughs> Sai and and everything that goes with him, which is there's the song and the dance and and the fashion style. It's a great example of this relatively recent concept of memes. Uh, who first described this idea of memes, and, and and what exactly is a meme? Yeah, um, I mean, originally I think it, it it comes from biology. It comes from. Um, I suppose essentially genetics. I think uh, uh, Richard Dawkins is um, credited with the concept of this idea of something being passed around without without anything, any one particular um, factor being responsible for for the wide circulation of something. In this case, biological, but of course um, it can be applied metaphorically to, particularly well, I think, to the uh, to the Internet age. Something that, uh, like Sai, like Gangnam Style, um, uh, gets passed around, circulated widely and wildly and without apparent logic, without very much content, uh, just something that catches somebody's imagination. It gets into some kind of uh, internet-based network and then connects with other networks and, um, and technologies and, and suddenly uh, everybody knows about it, is expected to know about it, uh, can't avoid it. This idea of, of things taking off virally, it's been a, around a long time before Psy, even before the internet. Uh, I'm thinking back to the 1980s and and the Wendy's hamburger commercials had everyone saying, you know, that, that little old lady saying, where's the beef? And, and women were wearing leg warmers as a fashion item because of the movie's fame and, and flash dance. And then in the 1990s, you know, Nike made the phrases, um, just do it and Bo knows famous. And even, 
you know, very recently, you know, right there in Australia, this internet video by the, I think it was the Melbourne Public Transit Authority about dumb ways to die. It's got 33 million views on YouTube. There's even a karaoke version of, of it now. What is it that makes one catchphrase or one style thing go viral and another doesn't go viral? Like, like how do these memes happen? Yeah, and I guess there's a science of memes, memetics, uh, trying to address that very question. And, I mean, the fact is, I suppose, that nobody really knows why something catches on and and, uh, something else doesn't. Um, But, I mean, what you're talking about, a very very wide range of phenomena there. And, I mean, in some cases, there are particularly successful advertising catchphrases. Um, And, I mean, they're not memes... We might say in the sense that they've just come out of nowhere. They've actually been designed to be to be memorable, to be used easily by, by people, as in the case cases that you mentioned. And um, some catch on and some don't, just like some ads re- register with people and some don't, don't. Now, because memes are very valuable things, I mean, if you, if you can, if you think about it, if you, um, if you've, if you can monetize a meme, uh, you've got all kinds of opportunities to to make money. Then um, uh, there are attempts to kind of um, manufacture them. Sometimes to pretend that something has suddenly appeared uh, in the public realm, but actually there are uh, marketing strategies that people have used. And there have been cases. Um, such as that where, for example, someone has apparently um, met uh, another person in a public space and they're desperately trying to um, contact them and there's a public search for them and so on. Then it turns out that actually they're they're selling some brand of clothing or some some object or or service. So I think uh, we have to be a little little bit sceptical about how spontaneous uh, this is uh, this phenomenon is, but it it does it does uh, happen in in a way that isn't entirely predictable. I think certainly technologies, I would guess, have contributed to the spread of memes. Um, which technologies specifically have have made memes spread that much more quickly? Well, yes, what we broadly call um, social media, I suppose, is the key to the, the spread of a meme. Although, of course, it's also conveyed by the mainstream media. So we get the, uh, this kind of funny interplay, strange kind of interplay between what you know what you would say are the institutional big, <laughs> big mastheads, big uh, uh, television companies and so on, and then somebody just operating out of their, um, their, their little uh, home office. Uh, so uh, the, I guess the the key technologies or applications will be uh, internet based uh, and mobile phone or cell phone based. Um, I, I would think Twitter would be probably the, uh, one of the best uh, suited ways of circulating a meme. I mean, 140 characters gets everywhere, um, linked to something. Um, suddenly, you know, if you want to watch the, the uh, side video, you can watch it uh, instantly. And, and of course, the mobile side of technologies 
means that you can pick it up any time, anywhere. So these are, I think, really the crucial technologies, yes. So do memes last, or by definition, do they fade away just as quickly as they arrive? Will we still be hearing from Psy in six months or eight months from now? I rather doubt it. I loathe as I am to, uh, you know, to predict these trends. I noticed, for example, that he's um, he signed on with Island Records, major American record company owned by um, Universal. So uh, a, you know, he's got some serious corporate grunt behind him now. Um, it's just a question of how long the phenomenon can go. Uh, and how far it can go. Uh, I mean, it's already a parody, so it'd be very, it's very hard to self-parody. So there have been parodies of the parody. I mean, it's, it's obviously amusing. There's uh, perhaps uh, an, uh, an element of irony or critique or satire there. Um, how far can it go? Very hard to tell. Generally, what ha- happens is there's an enormous spike. There's an energy behind the meme. So people need to know. Uh, they need to see that picture of the cat playing the piano or whatever it is, uh, uh, even just for a few seconds. Or they, they need to see a bit of the side video. Um, after that, it kind of its value degrades quite quickly. Um, you can imagine people tiring of it. So it's something that really rests on novelty and surprise, and that's really rather difficult to do for very long and more than once. So one final question, Professor Rowe. Can you do the cowboy dance yet? Uh, No, I think when one gets to a certain age, dignity becomes um, of the essence. And uh, so I I do enough, I'm sure, as far as my children are concerned, embarrassing things. And uh, this is one that I've passed on. (laughs) Professor Rowe, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Great pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. We reached Wayne Arnold, CEO of digital marketing firm Proferro, at his firm's offices in New York. Professor Rowe joined us from his offices at the University of Western Sydney in Sydney, Australia. For more information on both and other reference materials, check this episode's show notes at consumptionpodcast.com. So Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Joyous Kwanzaa. Whatever holiday you might celebrate at this time of year, we wish you a safe one, enjoyed with your family and friends, and best wishes for 2013. I'm Graham Spicer. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Consumption. Please subscribe to this podcast through iTunes. Show notes and more information can be found at consumptionpodcast.com. We encourage your comments, feedback, and story ideas. Consumption is a production of Hawthorne Digital Workshop. This audio recording is copyright 2013, Hawthorne Digital Workshop. All rights reserved.